This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering four conversations from Season 3, Episode 51, our first preview of Liver Meeting 2022. Plus, from The Vault, a section from our Liver Meeting 2021 coverage that includes predictions of what we might learn next week in D.C. The previous conversation ended with Jorn Schottenberg discussing the proper use for FIB4, that is, in referral pathways, as compared to the improper use, that is, in specialty practices and clinics. This conversation starts with Jorn listing MRE and FAST as two tests he prefers to use in his clinic. Stephen picks up on Ewan's FAST comment to ask why we don't just start with FAST everywhere. He points out that many guidelines recommend FIB4 first followed by Fabriscan. So he asks, why not just start with both and improve our ability to identify patients who need therapy? I reply by discussing briefly a poster from Mayo Clinic, uh, number 2309, titled Performance of AGA Clinical Care Pathway for the Risk Stratification of Patients with AFLD in the U.S. Population. This poster suggests that refining the AGA guidelines so that only only patients with type 2 diabetes and FIB4 greater than 1.3 would be screened would reduce the number of fiber scans by almost 10 million, or 70% of demand, without significantly affecting how many patients we miss. Eventually, the entire group agrees that FIB4 is not a good approach in specialty practices. However, FAST is, but FAST is probably not easy to implement, nor is it cost-effective in primary care. After some conversational byplay, Jorn introduces a presentation from Sunday morning's presidential plenary session titled Fibrosis Progression Rate among diabetic versus non-diabetic patients with biopsy-proven non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. In case you hadn't noticed, none of these are short titles. Your notes, two key somewhat novel findings from this presentation. First, while we have always assumed that fibrosis progresses one level in seven years, the number for patients with diabetes may be more like one level every six years. Second, he notes, a cumulative progression over the entire population in a 12-year period was 93% for patients with diabetes and 76% for patients without. Anybody with a FIB4 over 1.3 is likely to run into risk over time. As Jorn Schottenberg comments early in this episode, it is amazing how much data and energy will emerge from this meeting. So much that we are going to continue our preview episode next week. This is great stuff. So listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Jorn Schottenberg. For my um, clinic, I think other tests are more suitable, and I think some of them are revisited here with the MRE. I also like the FAST score, which is not far from the MR-based diagnostic tools here. I think it trails by 0.07 all rock if you look for detection of at-risk NASH. Stephen Harrison. To me, the imaging studies combined with the serologic-based studies all give us a little extra edge, I think. So perhaps... Instead of using something just as simple as FIB4, as this non-invasive test field evolves, you know, maybe we should be pitching something like FAST. If patients have a fiber scan, because I mean, if you look at the AGA guidance, it's FIB4 then fiber scan. If you look at even the easel guidance, it's it it's it's not done. It fast isn't there as kind of an initial screen, but they do recommend fiber scan in their algorithm after a blood-based biomarker. So to me, if you're recommending both, why not do something like fast right off the bat? Because at that point, you kind of improve your sensitivity. So Stephen, it's interesting you should say that. I have a thought and then a paper. It's an NHANES retroanalysis out of Mayo that Alina Allen's last author on that I think would argue maybe differently. And I go back to Jorn's question about how enriched your population is. Because the reason that people are recommending FIB4 in a general population is it's better on NPV than it is on PPV. So if you go to a population where you've got a lot of negatives, you might miss some, but you're not going to miss a ton. The more you enrich the population by taking the negatives out in advance, the more people you're going to miss. This is not a very good PPV tool, period. 
period at a sentence. So I agree. That's true. But nobody's looked. I don't think people have looked at fast from that perspective, right? Actually, I suspect they might. But this was the point of Alina's paper. They took a look at the AGA guidance and they said, if you take NHANES data and you push it out to national basis, since I'm only commenting on it, I'm not going to go into all the numbers that are in it. For those who want to look, the abstract number is 2309. They say you're going to wind up with 14.5 million fiber scans in the U.S. off the AGA criteria. And your positive predictive value is going to be 13%, which isn't entirely inconsistent with what you're saying. An awful lot of people you say are positive, you're just going to miss an awful lot of stuff, right? Of oh, the NPV is 0.9. They say if you add to that, that that's the right first test to do for people with diabetes, you can cut the number of fiber scans in the U.S. down to 4.9 million per year, which will save a bucket of money. You'll increase your positive predictive value to 0.33, and you won't miss any more people than you would miss the other way. Now, you're at the other end of that, which is once you've enriched the population, and I think this was your point, fib is fundamentally worthless. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, we are enriched here for sure. I'm just being a little provocative. I mean, why not do fast right off the bat if you have both, if you have AST and you have fiber scan, which is what every algorithm includes. They're just doing it sequentially. Why not just start with fast? Yeah. And, and again, Stephen, I'm with you. It's what I do in my clinic. If a patient is referred for workup, I don't do a FIB4. I write, go to transcendental lithography, throw in my labs and then calculate scores. There's some other things you decide on whether to obtain biopsy. The, the other important thing is, of course, though, we got to send the clear message that in the broad primary care or endocrinologist community, the FIB4 is the tool that's there when we can use today to decide on which patients not to send. I think that's the most important message. And the field is pretty united in that. And that's where you say, you know, I'm being a little provocative. I don't think it challenges that theme, but it might be that one day we have better tools to rule out. I agree. So, Stephen, one of the interesting points out of what you're saying is we've had this conversation in each of the last three weeks with different groups of people. The U.S. is the only country I'm aware of where AST is a required test on a blood panel. So that's a problem even getting to FIB4, okay? Huge problem if you want to use FAST instead of fiber scan. And one of the things I've been pushing last week at the patient advocate session was if you're not in the U.S., you should be advocating for AST to be part of everything that gets done because it makes all that possible. I mean, right now, there's no way to do that in most countries. Well, not only makes it possible. I mean, the, the amount of data that's out there linking AST to fibrosis is, I mean, it's huge. Yeah. I remember a paper I published in Gut in 08 and about 800 NASH patients, all stratified and phenotyped by Beth Brunt when I was a fellow at St. Louis. Clear, clear linear relationship between AST and fibrosis stage. Mm-hmm. This is why AST-ALT ratio is so predictive of advanced fibrosis. When the AST-ALT ratio is one, when both the AST and the ALT are the same number with the caveat that both are abnormal, then the odds ratio is nine for advanced fibrosis. I mean, huge. One provocative statement you just made that I would absolutely sign on to is why would anyone ever do a fiber scan without an AST alongside it? Does wonders for your ROC. If you did a FIB4 in the first place, you got it anyway, right? I mean, why not? To, to Jorn's point, what we're really trying to preach to with this message is those people that are at the front lines because Jorn and I will, you know, look, a fiber scan is a six vital sign. It's used in every single patient before I ever see them. As a hepatologist, I'm usually not referred to patient that doesn't have a set of liver chemistry test in hand. It's rare that a hepatologist gets referred to patient because they have right upper quadrant pain and nothing's been done or they're yellow and jaundiced, but no liver chemistry test is done. In fact, in the United States, you can't get a bilirubin without a set of liver chemistry tests. So they're coming hand in hand. So to me, it's an automatic thing. I got the fiber scan. I got the liver chemistry test. FAST is automatically calculated. But for the primary care provider on the front line, yeah, I mean, I think what we're saying is still do FIB4, but understand their inherent limitations 
limitations of that test. And you're potentially going to miss people. So look at everything through a wide lens. If they're a diabetic, they're obese, they're hypertensive, they have three metabolic risk factors. Mm, I'm not sure I'm totally trustworthy on a Fib4 less than 1.3. Let me get that fiber scan in that clinical situation. But I think part of this comes with educating PCPs and endocrines and even general GIs, you know, about the disease. We have to start somewhere. We start with Fib4. Once that becomes inherently built into their vernacular, then we can begin to whittle away at that and hone that skill a bit more and say, look, okay, Fib4 is good, but maybe if you have these additional risk factors, you probably need to go ahead and include the fiber scan. You know, it is what it is. We are not dealing with what I call in all of my talks, precision medicine, fifth generation strike fighter type non-invasive tests. We're still early on in the days of NITs and this kind of data is not unexpected. We, we expected that we would begin to punch holes in these screening tests. And here's an example of where that is happening. Uh, Roger, let me say something else before we move on. And you can feel how much excitement is coming out of this liver meeting, partly because there are many late breakers as we had in the previous session. But this is a 2000 biopsy phase three trial in NASH. I mean, this is so data rich and there's so many analyses. It shows how strong the field's been growing and how urgent the need is. I mean, to establish such a, and enroll all these patients, so much work has gone into that. And it's so exciting to see these big trials read out. So I have to say, I'm thrilled to head over to Washington and see more data. And there's so many abstracts we could talk about all night. I don't think we'll ever get finished here. So Jorn, with that as a lead-in, why don't you go on and do the next one? Sure. I picked an abstract that is in the presidential plenary session on Sunday, actually 9 a.m. So early rise on Sunday, but it's worth only the best abstracts are going to be picked. And this one is given by Daniel Wang from Singapore. The poster's title is called Fibrosis Progression Rate Among Diabetic Versus Non-Diabetic Patients with Biopsy-Proven Non-Alcoholic Fatty Liver Disease, a multi-center prospective study. To put it in perspective, a number that has been around in the literature based on a meta-analysis is that if you have NASH, you progress by one stage of fibrosis every seven years. If you're not NASH and maybe NAFLD, there's been another number. It should be slower, 14 years maybe, but in that ballpark. So I think seven years is something we know from the literature. This study revisits uh, this uh, question and details the progression rates in comparing diabetics and non-diabetics. It's doing so based on uh, data that's coming out of the NADDK NASH CRN consortium, which has been enrolling patients for a long time and among other things published in the New England Journal paper on outcomes last year. So really the among the best databases we have at this time. Eight sides enrolled into this um, sub-analysis and liver histology, and that's of course one of the strengths also is done uh, rigorously, systematically by a pathology committee that has been harmonized in terms of fibrosis assessment. And of course, pathologists are blinded to clinical data and sequence of biopsies. So the authors describe fibrosis progression rates in stage per time, and again, comparing diabetic versus non-diabetic. So the study included 448 adult participants, 64% with female, and the median time between biopsy was, I believe, 3.3 years. The range between 1.8 and 6.2 years, and I think the requirement we included was to have at least a two biopsies one year apart. One of the data that's not completely unexpected, but that hasn't really been looked at in that way, is that fibrosis progression rates in patients living with type 2 diabetes is higher compared to non-diabetics. Now, the spread is not gigantic. In the abstract, it tells us that it's 0.17 
stage versus 0.14 stage in patients. I think that's in years, which adds up for the diabetic population roughly around six years. And I've mentioned the seven years from the literature earlier, but it revisits that. And then the important thing is that the cumulative incidence of fibrosis progression up until 12 years was almost 93% in the diabetics and, and 76% in the non-diabetics. So they have a couple of ways they look at it. Now, the abstracts also showing a Kaplan-Meier curve. Again, not a huge difference, but based on that a patient number, there is a significant difference. And it just revisits that the patients with type 2 diabetes are at risk of fibrosis progression even more so than non-diabetic patients. And it shows how urgent treatment for that population is required. Your thanks. That had actually been one of the, like I said, I grabbed about 20. That was one of mine, and I, but I could not have done nearly as good a job with it. And the same thing jumped out at me. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week to continue our preview of next month's liver meeting, 2022. Until then, stay safe, surf on. We look forward to seeing you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.